From CAFE, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. And big debate tonight. Yeah. Did you watch the one last week? I did. It was very highly watched. I didn't see it. Why not? Um, you're never going to guess where I was. But are you going to tell our audience? I will tell you. I was at the first time in my entire life, a yo-yo show. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. You when know I, what? It's, it's not that different. <laughs> when I saw that there was another debate tonight, I was like, oh man, I wish I was back at the yo-yo show. So this guy, do you know how many Guinness Book of World Records for yo-yos he holds? No. Five. Five. He can he can do I a yo-yo. I didn't know they still had yo-yos. He, oh my gosh. I didn't, I mean. I haven't seen a yo-yo in a long time. Yeah. He can shoot a yo-yo. I don't know if shoot is the right word. He can throw a yo-yo yeah. and knock a quarter off someone's ear, on the back of your ear. Did Fi- you do that to your son? Uh, he, <laughs> he did not. <laughs> My a, son loved it, but he was not, he was not a volunteer. Who was the victim? Um, He's like the William Tell of yo-yo guys. <laughs> <laughs> he takes volunteers. It was all voluntary. And it's called Yo-Yo Show. It's really, I was, I was like, I don't know, should I go or should I watch the debate? And then I went, I was like, oh, that was so good. And then, of course, I caught snippets of the debate. And sadly, tonight, I have no yo-yo show to go to. So you might have to watch the debate. Exactly. Well, I don't want to talk about politics at the moment. <laughs> Can we not? For various reasons. And I don't want people to yell at me and tweet at me. I will keep my opinions about what is happening at the moment to myself until well, Super Tuesday. i have to ask you. Yes. Until <laughs> Super Tuesday. We'll see. We'll see what's happening to our American democracy soon enough. But big news yesterday. Yes. Harvey Weinstein convicted on two of five counts. I should remind people that Ann Milgram, not only a uh, a teacher, professor at NYU Law School, not only the former attorney general of the state of New Jersey, as you all know, but some may forget, some may forget that you served as an assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office, including in, among other places, the Sex Crimes Unit Division. Yep, Sex Crimes Bureau. The Sex Crimes Bureau, which is the bureau that prosecuted Harvey Weinstein. So, I'm going to take a back seat, ask you what you think, ask you to explain things to folks. So first, was justice done? Yes, I think very much so. I mean, if we really step back and think about it, there were two lead victims in the case, Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann. There were convictions of Weinstein on both victims. And, you know, I don't know how you felt about this as a federal prosecutor, because I think a lot fewer cases go to trial in the federal system. But as a state prosecutor, one of the first things you learn is a conviction on any count is a conviction. A conviction is a conviction is a conviction. And so here, Harvey Weinstein was convicted and found guilty. And he was found guilty as to each of the two lead victims for the main charges in the indictment. And so it was a really, really important day. And I I do think justice was done. So can we go through them? Yeah. Because not everyone is, and, and I'm one of the people who's not so familiar with these particular statutes. And people have a general understanding of what rape means or what sexual assault means. He was convicted of these two counts, criminal sexual act in the first degree with respect to Haley and rape in the third degree with respect to the other victim, man. Right. The more serious of the two is the criminal sexual act in the first degree. And that, I have the statute in front of me, but then you can explain what this means. A person is guilty of criminal sexual act in the first degree when he or she engages in oral sexual conduct or anal sexual conduct on the... I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but that's what the crime was. With another person, one, by forcible compulsion, or two, who is incapable of consent by reason of being physically helpless, and then the the other provisions relate to people who are underage. That didn't apply here. 
So why was he convicted of criminal sexual act in the first degree? So this count relates to Miriam Haley, and the allegation was that in 2006 in Weinstein's apartment that he forced oral sex on her. And so that's what she testified to at the trial, and that's the basis for that conviction. What everyone's asking is, what can he get? On that count alone, he can get five. The mandatory minimum is five years. The maximum is 25. So no matter what, he does five. No matter what, he does five. And the judge has no discretion. The judge has no discretion. Do you have a he prediction? Will, uh, you know, I think, well, we can talk about this as we go on, but he was convicted of two counts. My experience is when you have sex crimes victims and there are multiple convictions on different, for each victim, that the judge will sentence on each victim, in my experience. so Consecutively? So they'll consecutively, be end, end to end, exactly. not, not concurrent. Yes, that, that's my experience. And, and right. all, all judges can be different. Do you but know anything about this judge? I know he's tough, yep. Judge Burke. And I'll say, I think he tried a good case. He did not allow a lot of woofing quack in the courtroom. And <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about it, but there was... Is that, a, did you ever make that objection? <laughs> objection, basis, woofing quack. There, were, there was a <laughs> lot of gamesmanship. In this, this was a very, very hard. Oh, I want. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that, but let's go. Let's go to the second count. So anyway, on the second count, he can do probation to four years. The judge. But let's talk about what that is. Yes, because I'm confused. That's rape. Because it sounds very serious. Rape in the third degree. It is very serious. But it carries less of a potential sentence as criminal sexual act in the first degree. And rape in the third degree, according to the statute, a person is guilty of rape in the third degree in New York when he or she engages in sexual intercourse with another person without such person's consent where such lack of consent is by reason of some factor other than incapacity to consent. That sounds, why is that third degree as opposed to something more serious? Yeah, so I think I think there's two points to be made. The first is that this is the sort of catch-all rape provision, meaning that it was non-consensual sex, that there was someone who was put in a position where they did not consent to have sex and, and their will was essentially overborne. And it's used to capture the more sort of forms of coercion, different types of coercion. And rape one is physical force or threat of force. The question you're asking is... So is it murky for people? Is it easy for jurors to understand? You know, I think it is easy for jurors to understand. I, I mean, it really comes down to every rape case comes down to consent. And some cases are straightforward. And I think one of the issues with rape crimes frankly, is that people sort of think about rape as the use of force or um, the threat of force, and it's not always that way. In fact, frequently it isn't. Um, It's often more of coercion or, you know, a victim is afraid that if they don't comply, something bad will happen to them. Here, it really is this question of did these women consent? And remember that a lot of the testimony at trial was basically, this relates to Jessica Mann, and this is a 2013 assault where she basically said, he forced me to have sex with him and he physically forced me and I was intimidated by his size and I felt enormous pressure. Like he basically he was going to ruin my life and my career if I didn't comply. And so the jury was given rape one and rape three. So when we talk about those two counts and right. they convicted on rape three, not on rape one. And they didn't even hang on rape one. Are you a little bit surprised? Because the jury came back on Friday saying we are unanimous as to some counts, but not others. Did you have some surprise that they weren't hung on the other count, that they had a clear, unanimous, not guilty of rape one, clear, unanimous, guilty on rape three? Is that a, is that a compromise in some way? or it, it could be. We don't we don't know the inside of the jury. And so it could be that they were unanimous, that they weren't convinced that there was actual force. Or it could be that they compromised and some people believe that there was force, some people. But here what we know is everyone unanimously agreed in the jury that Jessica Mann did not consent to have sexual intercourse with Harvey Weinstein. I want to go back for one second, though. Just thinking about the sentence for a second, I think it's worth talking about this. I don't agree with the sentencing range for the E felony, rape three. And I don't agree with it because I think so many sexual assault 
crimes are like this. It's a lot more like human trafficking where attackers and predators use only the amount of force necessary to overcome someone's will. And so the fact that the law sees such a difference in terms of accountability for actual physical force versus coercion or fear that doesn't necessarily amount to fear that you're going to be seriously injured, the fact that that's only probation to four years, I personally do not agree with. And so I would just say you're asking the question why they're different, and I would argue that they shouldn't be as different as they are. Was another complicating factor here that the victim in the rape three charge, Jessica Mann, conceitedly had an ongoing relationship that was consensual some of the time. Does that become difficult for prosecutors to argue rape one or three or, or some other sexual misconduct when there is a conceitedly consensual relationship of some nature. Absolutely. And remember that this is very common in sexual assault cases. It is one of those things where there are a variety of reasons, and they had an expert, the government, the prosecutors had an expert testify to why this happens, but victims of sexual assault, they do sometimes go back to their attacker. And so the defense used it very effectively, I thought, here to basically say, this wasn't rape. This was a transactional agreement that the women were engaged in sex because they wanted something from Harvey Weinstein. And the way you know that is that they went back and had consensual sex. And so what the government basically argued, and actually Jessica Mann said this on the stand, I thought really effectively was just because I engaged in this relationship with him after doesn't mean he didn't rape me on this day, on the first day. Look, there's been controversy with respect to some judicial nominees, I think, over time, because there are some people who take the view erroneously both, I think, ethically and with respect to common sense and also under the law, that a husband can't rape his wife. Right. That's right. And that's just not true. Yeah. I, I mean, so these are these are obviously tough cases to try, but this is very consistent with what you see when you work with sexual assault victims. And I give the jury a huge amount of credit for understanding and for finding Weinstein guilty related to both of these victims. So we've talked about the two guilty counts. We've talked about the rape one with respect to man on which there was a, an acquittal. Then there are two other counts both called predatory sexual assault involving one, Haley and Shiora, Annabella Shiora, the actress, and the other involving Mann and Shiora. Why do you think that there was an acquittal on those and how serious were those charges? Okay, so the way I see this, and I actually think that the media missed a lot of this yesterday and today in, in the coverage of it because I think the sort of lead story is he's acquitted on three charges, convicted on only two. Whereas I think that the lead story really is that Harvey Weinstein was convicted and, and found guilty. And if you and I had talked about this two weeks ago, I would have said a couple of things about the predatory sexual offender charges. The first is that they initially were not included, that they were brought as part of this back and forth between the government and the judge over having Molyneux witnesses. Molyneux witnesses, that's a case, People versus Molyneux. And that's when you have uncharged crimes, prior bad acts, where you have witnesses come to a court and testify about them, even though they're not charged in the current offense. And so there were three of those witnesses that testified in the Weinstein trial. There were also a number of them that testified in the Bill Cosby case. And they they're important because they show they were used here to show a pattern, to right. show that Weinstein had an MO, that he always follows the same pattern, and they're not allowed in to show Weinstein did it before with these other women, so he did it here. They're right. only or allowed propensity. in. Exactly. Um, and in the federal system, we would call that 404B evidence. Exactly. Right. And they're very, very similar. So there was initially a conversation about whether Annabella Shura could be a Molyneux witness, to which the defense objected, saying, look, she could be charged. Like, there's a legitimate charge here on first-degree rape. She's claiming first-degree rape. And so... And so they were arguing, don't don't backdoor it. Exactly. In you, witness testimony... You need to front-door step it. Step up, yes, yeah, step yes. up to the plate 
and charge it in its own right. And the judge agreed. And so the government went back and there's a superseding indictment and they added these predatory charges. So they so added the charges on which he got acquitted. If you ask me, yeah. yes, they added them. And yeah. and so one of the predatory, to, in order to find the predatory sexual offense, you have to have two first degree convictions. There are a couple of other ways to get there, but here the applicable part of the statute is that there are two victims um, for which the defendant is guilty of first degree crimes. So remember- Even for one crime. Yes. So remember on Haley, there's a first degree criminal sexual act conviction. Man, there isn't. It's a third degree rape. So the man charge, they could not have even considered the predatory sexual Just assault. automatically. Automatically. By operation of law. Exactly. Okay. So that's out. And then the second piece is, so then it comes to Annabelle Shura and Haley, and that was where they had to decide, was Annabelle Shura a victim of first degree rape? Now, a couple of points. One is, the reason to have included this offense, and the reason why I believe that the government did, I have no inside information, but it's to get Shiora's testimony in as completely yep. as possible, to have zero limits on it. She can testify soup to nuts as a rape victim. Some people would say it was among the most compelling pieces of testimony at the trial. The fundamentals of her testimony were what? I think it was compelling. I think it's also really complicated because remember that she wasn't charged as a separate victim here because it's out of the statute of limitations. And it was, she had some difficulty remembering what year it was, but it came down to, she thought 1993 or 1994. So that's- And she, so there was at that time, at the time of the attack on, the alleged attack on Annabella Sciorra, there was a certain statute of limitations on rape but not on predatory sexual assault? Right. That's interesting. That's but that's right. changed yeah, since. That's changed since. Although there's still some rape crimes for which there is a statute of limitations, but rape one, for example, there is no statute now. The thing to, to think about with the Annabelle Shura is that it was a very long time ago. And what's interesting is that the jury didn't have the choice of rape three. Right. And so it's a really interesting question in my mind. If if it was within the statute and they could have done more of what they did with Jessica Mann, would they have convicted of rape three? My guess is yes. But I, I don't know that for sure. Right. So, so explain to people, we talk about modern juries as being the CSI generation, and they expect DNA and fingerprints and all sorts of scientific evidence. And that's what they learn from TV shows and from movies. In all of these incidents charged here, many of them from a long time ago, no physical evidence, correct? That's right. This was all witness testimony. Yes. How unusual is it in the modern era to convict on these kinds of charges without physical evidence? It is very hard. Look, I mean, these cases are he said, she said, similar to domestic violence cases, similar to some types of human trafficking, although with human trafficking, there's often a lot more witnesses. But with these types of cases, you have often two people in a room. One person says it's consensual. The other says it's not. Now, the purpose of DNA, and for example, you know, if a rape victim came in, they would get often a sexual assault kit. And that would let you figure out, was there trauma? Was there injury consistent with a sexual assault? And so that kind of evidence, along with DNA, it helps. Another type of evidence that helps a lot is outcry evidence. And here, that was also complicated. What's that? So it's when someone who's a victim of a crime immediately says to someone, oh my God, I was raped. And so here, there's an interesting example with Annabella Shiora who outcries to Rosie Perez, but she says, I think I was raped. And she doesn't name her assailant. She names her assailant months later. And so- But months later. Months later. Not decades later. No, not decades later. And so it's important and powerful evidence. It's also, it was not quite as clean as like a lot of times in a sexual assault case, the ideal is to have DNA, is to have a rape kit, to have an immediate outcry, to get the clothing off the victim immediately. I mean, that's the sort of best case scenario. 
What made this case a viable case, and I want to be really clear in saying how hard of a case this is, and the lead prosecutor, Jonah Luzzi, in my view, did an amazing job. She was the lead prosecutor in the Atan Pates case, the young boy who went missing and his body was never found. That was tried as a cold case many years later. She's an exceptional prosecutor and lawyer in my view. What made it viable was having more than one victim and having the ability to charge both Haley and Mann and Shiora, and then to get those Molyneux witnesses in. And that's what made this case a viable case. I had, uh, by happenstance, Ronan Farrow on the Stay Tuned podcast last week. I heard. It was a great interview. And so, uh, yeah, he was very interesting. And he obviously is one of the forces for bringing to the fore issues with respect to the Me Too movement, along with others like Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey and others. But the three of them really deserve so much credit for they breaking do. these stories. Now, remember, there was a lot of criticism of the Manhattan DA's office two years ago, two years plus, for not having brought a potential case against Harvey Weinstein. Taking a step back for a moment, do you think that the world has changed and that part of the reason this case was brought was because of the Me Too movement and because of the attention paid to it? You know, it's such a, it's such a good question. I mean, my, my view is I would have moved forward against Harvey Weinstein on the earlier case. And I don't want to sit in judgment of, of the DA because I think you and I have talked about this. Yeah. You know, we don't know all the evidence. We don't know all the facts. Some of it is public, but we've both made tough calls in those chairs. And so it can be difficult to sort of look back. But my feeling based on what I know is I would have moved forward with that case. So here, I think the Me Too movement is not just this case, but a lot of other cases. I think a lot of prosecutors are going to bring tougher cases now. And part of it is one of the things that Me Too has done is socialized all of us across the country to a better understanding of sexual assault and the imbalance of power that has allowed people like Weinstein and others to get away with it, frankly, for a really long time. And so I think it does make a difference that there's been this sort of national reckoning. I, I do think it makes a difference both for police, for prosecutors, for jurors, for courts. Like I think so also. The other thing I think is that when prosecutors are making a decision to proceed in a case and they're thinking about the likelihood of success and how difficult it might be, you know, prosecutors are human beings too and they do a cost-benefit analysis and if the risk of harm, if the harm that they're trying to address is very, very high, like a homicide or terrorism, they'll make the decision to take some risk and be aggressive and accept that they may not win the case or get the conviction because of that degree of harm. My sense is another thing that's going on is that because of the Me Too movement, people have begun to understand in their calculation that this kind of conduct is a real harm, societal harm, not just harm to individual women. And so they, they go through that same analysis now and are prepared to take on a harder case because they can afford to not succeed because the effort of trying is worth it in this context. Yeah, I agree. And look, look, I mean, I've always felt that, you know, prosecutors who tell you they never lost a case, it probably means they haven't tried enough cases and they haven't tried all the right cases because there are times where you will believe that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's a hard case and you may or may not succeed. And that's the right thing when you're the government. The other thing I really believe here is that, you know, a lot of police officers and prosecutors and the government gets used to winning. And also think about, a classic public corruption case where you may have a wire, you may have a video, you've got cooperators, you've got 10 witnesses, you've got bank records. Those are highly provable cases. This is really about working with victims and it is often he said, she said. And so being able to try that case and to be willing to try that case requires an understanding that this is actually the nature of this crime and yeah. you have to be willing to to walk in and do it. And not all prosecutors have done victim work and are comfortable in that space. Let's go back to the sentence for a second. So just to be clear, on the one count, five to 25? Yes. And on the other count, probation to? Four. 
in your prediction with respect to the you trends know, on both counts would be what? It's an interesting question. I think that, and we should talk about the defense lawyers for a minute, because I don't think that the defense lawyers will be a part of the judge's calculation. Will they be sentenced? I, they will not be sentenced, <laughs> but I don't want to forget the to, to talk about them. The one defense lawyer has got a lot of criticism a lot for of criticism. saying a lot of Yes, much of which I think things. is fair, yeah. um, although I also... But she won't be going to prison. No, and I would say, look, they... Well, let's talk about them for one second. The and then you're going to make me make a prediction, yes, and I am. I'm going to also have to fess up that in stone I was wrong. But you know, it's I've okay. been wrong. By the way, in the last couple of weeks, I've been wrong a whole bunch. If you and I had talked about, well, we'll come back to stone in a second. But the so the defense lawyers, it's really important to note that they hired every investigator they could to dig through the women's lives. They tried as hard as they could to attack the women. And they did it in a way that was, in my view, shameless and beyond beyond the pale of what's acceptable. And I should say, I should have said this up front, I represented a witness in this case. That witness was not called at trial. I'm speaking right now just generally about my view of, of their tactics. It was scorched earth. It was a really hard fought case. They did things that I do not approve of. You know, they even had this news article that the lead lawyer wrote, you know, saying, we want jurors to do the right thing. We really hope jurors do the right thing after there was Didn't a gag order. With, with The Daily, um, another podcast... And I think made false statements about when that interview was done during the pendency of the right. gag order, right? Right. Yeah. And and said in that interview that she had not been sexually assaulted because she would never put herself in, in that position, which obviously is outrageous in my view and, and completely shows a lack of understanding of sexual assault. But at the end of the day... Harvey Weinstein had a vigorous defense, and it's worth noting that the judge sat through the trial and that they tried everything in the book, and Harvey Weinstein was convicted. So I think where the judge will come down on sentencing is I think he will give Weinstein time on both charges that he was convicted of. And my guess is sort of six to nine range the judge years. is going to be looking at, six to nine years. Will but the judge take into account his age? He can take and, into and account. Frail, you know, he apparently, I, I forgot to check late last night or this morning if he's actually... He was taken to the hospital. He said he had um, chest pains, which, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't know if that's true or not. Um, But yes, he was taken. He was remanded, which is not uncommon in these circumstances. And we should just... So he's already beginning to serve. Yes. He was out on bail. And after the conviction, the, the government always asks for remand when somebody's facing a serious sentence. And particularly somebody like Harvey Weinstein, who has enormous means. Yeah could easily skip town and the yeah. court wants to make sure that he's there for sentencing and obviously he's going to get an incarceration sentence. Right. And so when the, you say remand, you mean he was, just, he was put in He was put in, yeah, in, sorry, he was, he was incarcerated and there's no opportunity for bail, meaning that there's no amount of money that he could put up in order to get right. out. But he's not done. He's got a case in California. Right, there's a pending case in LA. The sentencing here is March 11th. He's got a pending case in LA. And some people say that that case has even stronger evidence against him. Yeah, what I think is is compelling about that case is that it's two victims from a few days apart in like 2013 and so it's more recent in time. More recent in time, two victims, it's close in time, very similar types of MOs, patterns of how Weinstein acted and yeah, I mean closer in time is very helpful for the government. Witness memories are better. Right. So how will, so will he be flown on like with Nicolas Cage on Con Air out to, <laughs> out to California? To face trial? Yes. In and the, that case? Yes, he will. And so he faces a rape count and a forcible oral sex count there as well. So if he gets convicted there, the way I have understood it to be, but I'm not so familiar with the state system, will it be up to the California, the second judge, who let's say hypothetically gets convicted and she wants, she, he or she wants to impose a five-year sentence, that judge can run it concurrently to the New York sentence, meaning it wouldn't be additional time? Yeah, I think that's an option. Or can run it consecutive? Yeah, I think that's an option for the California judge. So he's looking at whatever he's getting here plus whatever he gets 
Yes. So, and I would reasonable expect likelihood. A reasonable likelihood that he is never, if he gets convicted he, there, he, he gets more is time. Is free exactly again. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and he's sixty-seven. I think we said now, um, and I think if he's convicted in California, the judge will not sentence concurrently. The judge will give him additional time, and so I would expect that he will look at if he's convicted there a considerable prison sentence. Before we move on, what do you think this means for victims generally and for people who care about these issues generally? Is it a watershed moment? I think it is. I think it is. I mean, there's a way in which we could talk about this as it is David versus Goliath, right? Harvey Weinstein was, by all accounts, one if not the most powerful person in the entertainment industry. And he wielded that power in numerous ways, particularly, obviously, here we saw with sexual assaults. One thing that I think it took 80 victims, right? I mean, one one thing that's amazing about this is that there are, you know, just tens and tens of women who came forward to talk about their Harvey Weinstein stories. And it's outrageous to me that it had to get to this point for him to be held accountable. But the fact that he was held accountable, I think it sends just a huge message to victims about how the system can hold offenders accountable, even when they're rich and powerful. And look, Harvey Weinstein, he may not be in jail yet, but he's about to be in jail. And the system treats everyone, rich or poor, powerful or not, the same when it comes to criminal convictions. And it sends a message to other prosecutors too. Yeah. That you can take on these cases and you can prevail. Exactly. One thing that came up in the debates, I guess relevant to this, in the last debate, when you were doing the yo-yo thing. I'm going to show you the video later. Um, look, lucky, <laughs> lucky, maybe we'll post it. Lucky for you is this issue of, I mean, I don't mean to compare these two things, but non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, which is the kind of thing that can protect a bad actor or a, or a company that's, you know, allowed bad conduct. I think you're right to, to compare light. it a little, or at least to, to draw the line between them. And Elizabeth Warren was very strong. Yes. Standing right next to Mike Bloomberg, whose company has engaged in the somewhat common practice of having people sign NDAs have become very common lately so that women who've had grievances are not allowed to come forward. And she was so strong about it that a few days later, Bloomberg is like, yeah, we've taken a look and we're prepared to release right. well, three Bo- women from their NDAs. Yes. And so there are a few points that are worth us going through. The first is that there is a line between these things. Sexual harassment happens often in the workplace. You know, when, when you look at Weinstein, one of his victims here was a production assistant. Another was an aspiring actress. And a number of the victims are women who worked with him professionally. And one of the things we've seen consistently with companies, and you remember I did the Dallas Mavericks, the investigation to the Dallas Mavericks basketball team for sexual harassment, is that you see that there are cultures that develop when companies deal with sexual harassment in a way that basically sweeps it under the rug and it allows offenders to continue. And there are terrible consequences. Sometimes there's sexual assault. Sometimes it's sexual harassment. Either way, it takes away women's ability to work and to work free of harassment and fear. And so I do think that you know, there's extremes. We're talking about one extreme of sexual assault with Harvey Weinstein. But when we're talking about the sort of Bloomberg and the question of NDAs, we're talking more about harassment or inappropriate comments. One thing to note, and I think the media has done a bad job on this. I feel like I'm always criticizing the media of which we're a part, but... Are we? Sometimes we do. Sometimes I do. You're, you're, Does you're, Trump want to pull our license? <laughs> <laughs> he threatens that from time to time. Everything's gotten lumped together on the NDA front. So there's a lot of conversation about, well, Pete Buttigieg had an NDA with McKinsey. So let me just separate these into two buckets and ask you what you think. One is the bucket of your company, you work for clients, and the work you do is confidential because your competitors, you don't want your competitors to get your trade you secrets. Your trade secrets and, and intellectual property and those kinds of things. Totally and that's legitimate. that's a normal business practice. Exactly. And that's a normal business practice that's legitimate. The second kind of NDA that I think we're really talking about here is when 
employee comes forward, makes a complaint. As part of that complaint, it's settled, and right. it could and be. Bill a, O'Reilly pays thirty-seven million dollars, <laughs> exactly, exactly, for, or thirty-five million, whatever it is, right? It, and it, he's allowed to claim later that other people are behaving badly. Right. Because these women can't say anything. Exactly. And and so it has commonly been used as a way to silence women in the workplace who are accusing others in the workplace of harassment. And sometimes there's financial part of it. Sometimes it's, we'll transfer your job and we're going to give you. But women are forced to sign an NDA. I disagree so strongly with it because it ends up reinforcing these cultures of fear. But it's not unlawful. It's not unlawful. And it's not against any sort of public policy. And it's been, frankly, very, very common. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's that, a legally enforceable contract. Yeah, and what Bloomberg said is that they will not do it anymore in this context. So this is the kind of thing you have to you have to rely on involuntary decision making by companies right. who will say we're not going to do this going forward because of public pressure. Yes, and this again also I think is a reckoning where people are realizing that one reason why a lot of complaints against people don't come out and why frankly offenders are allowed to reoffend other women in the workplace is that someone makes a complaint and it's swept under the rug with an NDA and a settlement. Uh, look, this is a totally different context, but one thing just to mention quickly, that we changed in our office was in the context of settling any kind of civil suit brought by the Southern District of New York, we brought a lot of them against financial institutions and other entities, people would often end up settling under the traditional way, which was neither admit nor deny the allegations, here's $300 million. We started taking the position that if we went through the effort and in good faith brought a suit, the public has a right to know what wrongdoing we uncovered, and there had to be admissions. And in some ways, that was harder for companies... Agreed. And paying the money. They would all rather pay the money than And people said, well, no one's ever going to settle. Everything's going to go to trial. And heads would spin and the defense bar would go crazy. You know what? They didn't. And once they understood that our policy had changed, they came on board. And there are ways to figure out what are appropriate admissions to make. But virtually every case that we settled after about you know midway through 2010 on the civil side, people had to admit what they did. So yeah, it was, it that's was a the, great example. Sort of parallel to the NDA, which we undid. So Roger Stone... We have a question from a listener whose Twitter handle is Crooked Reviews. I don't know what to make of that. Hi, Ann Milgram and Preet Bharara. What do you think of the 40 months plus two years supervised release and the $20,000 fine? Hashtag Ask Preet. Hashtag Cafe Insider. So everyone will remember, it seems like, this was like a week ago, right? It seems like 45 years it ago. It does. It feels like years ago. <laughs> there's, like, yeah. there's like pre-yo-yo event and post-yo-yo <laughs> event. That's how I see the Everything world, too. Before the yo-yo <laughs> event, I don't... I can't really remember. And you well remember, I, I think I predicted, did I predict five to seven, I think? Yeah, but I mean, I think we both said that seven to nine was high. I think there's a consensus about that. And you can hold two thoughts in your mind at one time. One, that seven to nine was too high. And also, Bill Barr should have kept his mouth shut and yes. not meddled and interfered and overruled. I didn't know exactly what it would be. I think the 40 months is not an unreasonable sentence. I think it's very reasonable. It's a little lower than I thought. I'll tell you why. If we went back to our initial discussion before the sentencing memos came out, I think, you know, if we'd looked at Scooter Libby, I think got 36 months, around three years for lying about a leak of classified information. It does fall within the heartland of a number of other significant public corruption false statement cases. And so it doesn't offend me at all. I think it's actually a very fair sentence. And I think I would have probably set up front three to five would probably have been my closer guess, even though I was yeah, influenced been, by the government's memo. But just going back again as to the actions of Bill Barr, and no one's saying that the attorney general is not allowed to have a different view and not allowed to overrule prosecutors. Just in this context, I've never seen it before. In it's a highly the way charged he did it. Yeah. Right, it's the way he did it. But also, it seems unnecessary. Like, why did you have to weigh in? I mean, a million times I've seen prosecutors go for a very, very high sentence that you know consensus might be... It's a little the judge too is high. not going to do it, and the yep. judge does what the judge does. 
And in this case, you know, there was some speculation that the judge was going to feel compelled to do so. I think the judge did what the judge was otherwise I, going to I do. I agree. And was not affected in any way by the shenanigans of Bill Barr or Donald Trump tweeting or anything else. I totally agree. And that's the right thing, by the way. The nonsense, the judge's job is to figure out, and you and I have talked about how hard it is, this idea of sentencing someone. The judge's job is to figure out what they think is a fair sentence given the conduct. And the judge You the also judge don't punish a, a defendant. You also don't punish a defendant like Roger Stone, who himself independently deserves considerable punishment, which he got, but you don't punish him for shenanigans by Bill Barr or Donald Trump or ed- newspaper editorials That's right. or anyone else. You look at the case on its merits and what it makes sense to sentence that person to, if anything. But then you also have a chance, judges have a chance to speak their minds. And she did. And she said a lot of tough things, among others, that will, I think, figure prominently in the future. If it comes time for Donald Trump to, to pardon Roger Stone and will cause more controversy, she said, you know, he wasn't doing what he did, meaning Roger Stone to stand up for the president. He did what he did to cover up for the president. Yeah, that was a powerful statement. And she also said, so what did the defense say to the jury on his behalf? So what? So what? Of all the circumstances in this case, that may be the most pernicious. The truth still exists. The truth still matters. I mean, that that's a line from the government's yeah, did closing. Did Adam Schiff write that for her? <laughs> no, from the... From Alex the, Vindman. Exactly, from the government's the closing. Yeah. The, that was one of the more powerful parts of the, of the closing, yeah, You actually. can't copyright that. I mean, it actually is a fundamental principle. Yes. Um, that, that you and I can say, and, and judges can say, and house managers can say, because it remains true. And the judge said, you know, who cares? Congress cared. The United States Department of Justice, the United States Attorney's Office for D.C. cared. The jurors who served with integrity cared. The American people cared. And I care. It's a powerful statement by a yeah, judge. But he's going to get pardoned, right? He's definitely going to get pardoned. I took, a, I took a poll in my NYU seminar on Monday. And usually there's differences of opinion. And these are all bright students at, at NYU, two L's and three L's. And I said, how many of you think that Roger Stone is getting pardoned? Every single hand went up. Now, do you think <laughs> he's going to be, he's, is he going to be pardoned before he does a day in prison? You know, I, I've been so wrong about stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I don't think he'll wait too long. I think he's going to do it pretty soon, too. I sort of feel like... The- he's laid the foundation. The bottom line is Donald Trump has said that he thinks the entire prosecution was bogus and wrong. And if he believes that, and if he also believes, as he has said, that he has the absolute right to pardon whoever he wants, that's two plus two equals four. Yeah, he's been very vocal on it. There's zero question in my mind that Roger Stone is going to be pardoned. I think the only question is timing. My instinct is he would do it before Stone serves any time because, again, if he believes this is all unfair, but they're still litigating. Right now they're litigating. Stone has asked for a new trial. Stone has asked for the judge to recuse herself. None of that is So we don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the weird thing about recusal, we should talk about that for one second, and I don't know if you ever contemplated moving to recuse a judge. It's a very fraught thing to do. Yes. Because the person who decides... Is the judge. Is the judge. (laughs) Who you're saying cannot be fair. And has huge discretion. And then... So you say, hey, you're unfair. You're totally terrible. We hate your guts. Could you please get off the case and recuse yourself? No, I think I'm fair and I'm good. And now I hate you back. Exactly. I mean, you hope oh, the judges exactly. don't, don't think that, but then there you're stuck. There should be a different system. You're stuck. I mean, you can, you can appeal it. I once had a judge in a misdemeanor case say it was a defense wave jury. I think it was a B misdemeanor. And the judge, it was a fight between a landlord, I think, and a tenant. And the judge said, right, as we were starting, oh, by the way, I'm a landlord. I see no reason why I couldn't be fair. Do you see any reason why I couldn't be fair? What did you say? Well, I looked at my supervisor. It was like my second or third trial. And she was like, oh, I would, you know, keep on, like, keep with the judge. It was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he found he found the defendant guilty of a lesser offense, but the evidence was very clear in my view. And right. We should have asked him to recuse. Her argument against recusal is exactly your point, which is that he was one of the main misdemeanor judges. And so I was going to see him 
and the prosecutor's office, like the DA's office, we saw him all the time. So it was at huge peril to us to basically say, we don't trust your judgment. We don't think you can be fair. We should spend more time in the future on this recusal issue. I think we'll talk about Donald Trump talking about the recusal of certain Supreme Court justices. Because there are times when judges get threatened. There are times when I got threatened by defendants, narcotics defendants in prison in a very creepy and weird way. And the question was, do I need to recuse myself? Because now I might be more vindictive towards those defendants. And the law is, and the ethical principles are such that, no, you don't. Because if you did, then People every defendant would be- you, every, exactly. Every, yeah, defendant yeah. would be incentivized to get rid of a tough judge by issuing some threat and it'd be worth the effort. Yes, I agree. Part. So while we're on the subject of recusal, among many things that Donald Trump doesn't understand, including walls and hurricanes and other such things, from the perspective of people who are lawyers, he doesn't understand recusal. Or maybe he understands it and he only thinks it's used as a cudgel for him and also a shield for him. A cudgel, I guess, against his enemies and a, and a shield for his allies and friends. So he has said, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a couple of remarks back in the 2016 campaign, she should recuse herself from cases that involve him and evidence that people are trying to get in connection with some investigations. And also, for reasons that are unclear to me, also Sotomayor. I guess on that logic, you could also make the argument that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch should recuse themselves and we end up having no justices can opine on anything. Yeah. And look, Supreme Court appointments are for life. And so the idea is that no one's beholden to anyone now. And so this is a fraud area because obviously they're political appointments. But there's no basis. There's no basis. There's for the no recusal basis. of these no, two justices. No. And again, and again, Supreme they Court, decide yes. and there's no appeal to anyone. Yes. And again, they're not looking for to be appointed again. Like they don't need to curry favor with anyone. Like that's the whole idea of a lifetime appointment is that you're there and you use your best judgment and you put everything else aside. And so the recusal thing is often, it's different in other contexts, but here, unless they have a personal interest in a case right. now, like if a justice was an investor for years in a company and the company was coming before the Supreme Court, you would expect them to That's recuse. That's more clear. But yes. you know, there are other softer issues. I mean, look, people have made these arguments about recusal before with the same amount of success. I remember a time when people suggested that Justice Scalia should recuse himself from various matters relating to the Bush administration because he went, I think he went on, on hunting trips. Yeah, he went on a number of hunting trips. With Dick Cheney, which, by the way, is very brave, because sometimes he shoots you in the face. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually thought that was like a, like a like big up for Antonin for agreeing to do that. But yeah, I mean, th this is sometimes a conversation. What happened recently, and I think what prompted Trump to basically start lashing out at the justices, is that Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissent, and she was, you know, it's been described as a scathing dissent. I think that's fair. And she basically criticized the conservative justices for basically political favoritism, for basically allowing the Trump administration to skip the appeals court process. And just to do this as quickly as we can, but I think people should should understand what's happening and just sort of keep an eye on it. What happens is that when a preliminary injunction is issued by a district court, that's the first level federal court, then people usually would go on, the case would be heard by the district court, and then it would go on to the appellate court. And after the appellate court, you have the opportunity to appeal to the Supreme Court. Very few appeals are as of right. Most of them are discretionary. The Supreme Court, the highest court in the country, gets to decide which cases they'll take. There was a case last Friday where there was a preliminary injunction that was issued in Illinois, and it related to plans by the Trump administration to deny green cards to undocumented people who are thought likely to become, quote, public charges by making some even minor use of public benefits like Medicaid, food stamps, and housing vouchers. So what the conservative majority did was basically they let 
the Trump administration skipped going through the appellate process, and that would have meant that the injunction, mean an injunction says you can't do it yet. You, we're going to litigate these issues. And so the new Trump rule that would have done this denial to undocumented individuals, that couldn't go in effect while the injunction stood. It was raised to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court struck it down. And so what Sotomayor's point was that basically it's very bad to allow the administration to skip this critical part of the appellate process. And she wrote, claiming one emergency after another, the government has recently sought stays in an unprecedented number of cases, demanding immediate attention and consuming limited court resources in each. And with each successive application, of course, its cries of urgency ring increasingly hollow. So there's nothing in any of that that suggests recusal, especially coming out of the mouth of Donald Trump, who in the one thing that you could say that Jeff Sessions did right was to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. Trump said over and over again, don't recuse, don't recuse, don't recuse. He doesn't have any, any expectation of the, of the two women justices recusing. What he's doing is what he does with everything else. He's trying to delegitimize the institution in advance of a potential adverse decision against him. Right. And what Sotomayor has done here is she's drawn the line in the sand with her colleagues to say, like, you're acting politically, you're hurting the Supreme Court, you're doing things you shouldn't do, stop doing it. And so she's called them out, It probably in an effort to get them to stop doing it and to be more thoughtful about what's happening. And Trump is now pushing back. Yeah, look, and you can see, you can foresee the harm he's going to do the institution. If there's an adverse ruling against him, and presumably Sotomayor and Ginsburg vote a particular way, he's not going to lay his hands off. He's going to get up in front of microphones over and over and over again and say, that was a hoax, that was nonsense. That was rigged. Those two justices should have been recused. And you know what? 50, 60 million people will believe it and think the Supreme Court is politicized in the way that the president is talking about. Yeah. And just so people understand, the appellate courts are there for exactly this purpose, to, to litigate these complicated legal issues, to figure out what they think, and then to allow people to go to the Supreme Court. And so it's very possible that the Supreme Court would never have to be involved in many of these cases as a result of the decisions of the appellate courts. And so it really is really bad to put the Supreme Court in the middle of this type of effort to end run the appellate courts. You know what else is really bad? What? Politicizing the DNI job. Yeah, the Director of National Intelligence. So various people have had that job recently. Dan Coats, Senate confirmed, had the job. And after he was let go, somebody was there in an acting position, Joseph McGuire. Then the president actually appointed... Another acting, uh, Richard Grinnell, Rick Grinnell, who's been the ambassador, the ambassador to Germany. Germany. Yes. And people are up in arms because that person doesn't have a lot of intelligence experience. And the DNI was created in the aftermath of 9-11 and uniquely among positions in the government. The U.S. attorney doesn't have this in the statute. Attorney general doesn't have this. Secretary of State doesn't have this in the statute. There's a reference to there being considerable intelligence experience on the part of the person who gets nominated to that spot. Yeah, I mean, they're overseeing 17 intelligence agencies throughout the United States government. It's a critically important job in today's world. It's supposed to be a non-political job. Always should be non-political. So they can sift among intelligence materials and analysis and provide the best possible information upon which the president and the government may act. It's among the most important jobs, in my view, because, again, it really comes down to so many critical things for the protection of, of American safety at home and abroad. And... 
here, you know, what it looks like happened is that Joseph McGuire, as the acting DNI, his deputy, Shelby Pearson, gave a briefing to the House Intelligence Committee, which, of course, is chaired by Adam Schiff, who led the impeachment effort, on Russian election intelligence. And the briefing was essentially that the Russians were trying to interfere with the 2020 election and that they were doing so with the goal of getting Donald Trump reelected. Right. Now, in fairness, you know, I think the jury's a little bit out on this. I'm fully prepared to believe that Trump was irritated and annoyed as he's been with lots of other people. And there's lots of other reporting about this with respect to Jesse Liu, the former U.S. attorney in D.C., and the shenanigans, it sounds like, of the wife of Clarence Thomas, who's drawing up lists of who's loyal and who might replace those disloyal people in government. So I'm perfectly prepared to believe that. On the other hand, there is some reporting out of CNN, where we work sometimes, suggesting that what was said at the briefing overstated the intelligence a little bit. So I don't know. There's been no reporting from people who've seen the underlying intelligence has there that's been sourced. And so we don't know, but I remain a little bit skeptical on this because it feels to me that my experience with intelligence folks is that they're really careful as a rule. And well, so, they used to be. And I think just to sort of highlight this debate, you know, McGuire was pushed out after this briefing. He could not have stayed in office as acting beyond another couple of weeks yep. because of a term. And I keep hearing people on behalf of Donald Trump say... Look, he was going to have to go anyway. Right. And That's they're, not not the making right. Grinnell, they're not making Grinnell permanent. Yeah. I don't think it's the right argument, though, if it's true that he was pushed out because of a briefing to the House Intelligence Committee, which is exactly what they're supposed to do. So let's go back to the intel for one, one second, just because the briefing was essentially 2020 election, Russians are trying to interfere, and they want Trump to win, basically. The pushback is that that the underlying intelligence is more that there isn't a preference for Donald Trump. It's steps short of that, that basically the reporting said, quote, it's more that they understand the president is someone they can work with. He's a deal maker, close quote. Now, I don't see any reason why Putin wouldn't want Donald Trump if I'm just using my common sense, why he wouldn't want Donald Trump to stay in office. But again, I think the bigger issue, and we should be thoughtful about all these things, but the bigger issue is that the House Intelligence Committee has to be briefed and that the people who are briefing should be cautious, but that, look, it's very likely that I don't have any question that the Russians will try to hack the 2020 election. And I personally believe that as of now, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't try to do it in favor of Donald Trump. It's getting more complicated, too, because there has recently been reporting that's been confirmed by Bernie Sanders as the Democratic, you know, a Democratic aspirant for the job, that he was briefed some weeks ago by the intelligence community that there are efforts by Russia to aid his campaign. Right, to make him the nominee. It's right. a really interesting question. So if Bernie is the nominee and Trump is obviously going to be the nominee, who does Russia go for then? Um, I assume I Trump, but we don't know. <laughs> um, but right now, I mean, the biggest issue is that the Congress should be facing and the president should be facing that Russia is meddling or trying to meddle in our election. And we should be doing everything we can to push back against that. Yeah, it's dispiriting on top of already being dispirited to see how much craziness is going to be alleged, talked about, maybe lied about on the part of a lot of people, including foreign governments, in the next eight or nine months because all the stuff is swirling around and because of, you know, what it looks like the nominee will be. I mean, I'm just, I'm getting yeah. a headache. No, I'm getting I a agree. headache. Thinking I agree. I will try look, to unpack it on the show every week. You know, one of the other issues is that I think that the administration is going to do a lot of this, which they're doing here, which is trust us, trust us on the underlying intelligence. And I really feel like there's going to be a level of, there has to be a level of greater transparency on some of it because, you yeah, know. good luck. Right. I know. That's, that, that's I not know. happening. Yeah. That's not happening. It's not happening in the second Trump term yes, either. Yes, that's true. Does anything funny happen this weekend? So one thing that happened this week is a journalist, Nicole Najafi, came out with 
what would it be like to go on a date, a first date with all the presidential candidates? And then she wrote these, what I consider to be hilarious notes about each one. And so since Bernie Sanders is the has the most delegates, 31, I know because we're keeping our chart so far, I think we should read Bernie today and then we can move on to read others. So <laughs> okay. this is what Nicole Najafi imagines a first date with Bernie Sanders would be like. He picks you up at your apartment and takes you on the subway to Gray's Papaya, <laughs> which is a famous New York hot dog restaurant for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and they basically sell hot dogs hot and dog papaya restaurant. juice. <laughs> restaurant, hot dog restaurant. I think restaurant may be overstating it. definition it's, it's a, of a restaurant. What kind <laughs> of dates <laughs> have you been on? <laughs> We're going to ask Nicole Najafi we to do one about it. <laughs> hey, welcome. Welcome to this bodega restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know outside we, of New York, Grace Papaya Open is air. a noted <laughs> hot dog restaurant. It's it's a hot dog bistro of sorts. Is it like two dollars for a dog and a papaya juice yeah, or something? It, It'd be a dollar. Does not a restaurant make? Yeah, there's no there's no seating. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, it's like this debate: is a hot dog a sandwich or not a sandwich? It's totally if a, a sandwich. Does, if a restaurant if a restaurant doesn't, doesn't have, have seats. tables. Anne Milgram, it look, might you're very counters. generous. <laughs> this is part of your generous spirit. That you walk by Grace Papaya and you think the proprietors, we want them to feel like they own They're part a of the New York restaurant. restaurant scene. <laughs> Sometimes it gets reviewed in, in it does. Zagats. It does. Yeah. All right. Okay. I interrupted you. So first day with Bernie Sanders. He picks you up at your apartment and takes you on the subway to Grace Papaya. He orders two recession specials <laughs> for a total of $10.86. And you split the bill down the middle, even though he got a larger soda. He yells in your face for three hours. <laughs> you go home and cry into your pillow for sex. The end. <laughs> Here's the date with Elizabeth Warren. You meet at 6 a.m. on a Sunday for a hike. She packed a first aid kit, sugar-free snacks, and brought you an extra visor. <laughs> You know what? I always forget to bring that extra visor. Or a hat, always. I always just have one. And sunscreen, I always forget. After mile five, you get tired and ask to rest. She keeps going without you. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. More to follow. All right. So um, knock yourself out with the yo-yo shows. I'm going to send you the video later. And we'll, we'll be back with you next week. See you soon. That's it for this week's Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. <laughs>